Is it recording? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I just have it recording so that... <laughs> Bloopers. <laughs> I'm scared. Why are you scared? I don't know. <laughs> I'm nervous. Don't be nervous. I feel like I'm going to sound like an idiot. No, you'll be fine. You'll be what amazing. What if I'm not funny? You, you're always funny, Zara. I don't Hi, welcome back. <laughs> this was an unplanned hiatus I have put you all through. And I apologize for that. I really do. There were some personal crises going on. Everything's all good now. There's nothing to worry about. We, things are solved. Things are good. But just my work hours changed, which is good because money, but bad because it restricts my time a little bit for research. Um, Earth Day and Earth Month both happened. <laughs> I turned 23. <laughs> A lot of things have happened. Hi. <laughs> I'm joined this week um, by my other best friend, Zara. Hello, everybody. Hi, Zara. Zara's very graciously joining me after uh, this has been put off for a long time, but we're back now. I'm very excited to be here. I'm so glad you're excited. I have come over two times <laughs> to record, and I did not record any of those two times. <laughs> it happens. So now I'm finally doing it. I'm bad at time management. But Geographic is back now, and in case you missed the Instagram post, or don't follow the Instagram, which you should, at Geographic Podcast on Insta, uh, the upload schedule is a little bit different now. Episodes are going to be released every other Thursday instead of every Thursday, just because it works better with my personal schedule, and it makes it easier to schedule guests, and it gives you more time to really sufficiently research and deliver these really comprehensive and informative episodes because I want to give you guys quality content and a bi-weekly schedule just makes it easier for me to do that. So every other Thursday starting, well, not today, we're recording on a Monday, but when you get this, it'll be a Thursday. So technically starting today when you hear this. Uh, so no episode next week, but there will be after that, I promise. And hopefully one day in the future, eventually a long time from now. <laughs> We can return to weekly episodes, but I'm just going to feel things out and play it by ear because I'm making all of this up as I go. And I'm kind of being coy about returning to weekly episodes because I'm thinking about Patreon in the future and delivering Patreon exclusive episodes on those new in between weeks, but we'll see. That's the vibe so far. That's crazy. I yeah, didn't that's know that crazy. you were wanting to do a Patreon. Maybe. I'm thinking about it. We'll that's see. That's crazy. I support it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but... I don't know. Like I said, we'll see. I'm figuring things out. I really want to do a lot with this. So, I realized I just went through all that without saying my own name. Um, I'm Alexis. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> this is Geographic. And this is Zara. Hi. Hi. <laughs> now that we've covered all our bases again. I don't have any nature news this week. Um, I do have some important news. Title 42 ended this week, which if anyone doesn't know what that is, it was a... Uh, a COVID-era piece of legislation that basically allowed the U.S. to turn away or deport immigrants under the guise of COVID precautions. I just mentioned it because it's important. I'm second generation. My mom is the daughter of an immigrant. I'm first Zara, generation. Zara, yeah, is yeah, first Yeah, I was gen. like, do we Zara is the daughter of an immigrant. <laughs> I really am. So it's something that's really important. I mean, we live in San Diego, which, you know, border culture here is a big thing, and a lot of people I know and grew up with and went to school with mm -hmm. would cross the border every day, so... You know, it's really, and I mentioned it and make it sound kind of grim just because this was like a big thing that people were, were using for immigration laws. Now that it's gone, there's uh, 
going to be a lot more legislation blocking immigrants. And it's just, it's going to be kind of a, a tricky time. Yeah. So. And there's already a lot of stuff in, like, Florida. Yeah. Right now. I want to punch, I want to punch Ron Dick Santis straight in the face. Um, yeah. <laughs> I fucking hate that guy. I just hope that it kind of shows yeah. just how much immigrants do. I know that a lot of, like, the construction sites are, like, doing, like, nothing. Yeah. Nothing's Literally getting nothing's done happening because nobody's going to go to work because they've allowed for no immigrants to work. Mm-hmm. I think that there's, like, a trucker protest going on, too, with it. Yeah. But I don't know if that's because of the immigrants or if that's just because the gas. I don't and, know like, either. I don't know because I kind of looked into it and they were complaining about the gas prices, so... Uh, I have no idea. Oh, one way or another, Florida's fucking up. <laughs> Why? What else is new, though? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I just wanted to mention that to say that, you know, this podcast stands with immigrants. I stand with immigrants. Everything that they do and have done is incredibly valuable and important. If you are an immigrant listening to this, if you know any, if you're related to any, regardless of your status, documented or undocumented, you matter, you're important. And I'm actually going to find some resources to link in the show notes um, in case this is, like, really affecting anybody. So, again, thank you, immigrants. Gracias, inmigrantes. Thank you for everything that you do for our country. Um, Not just our country, but every country that you immigrate to, (laughs) you know, it's just coming from the United States. We know that you do, you make our economy grow and we're really appreciative without you guys. Yeah, and our culture. Yeah. We add so much. Can you imagine mm-hmm. if American culture didn't have any immigrants? <laughs> imagine if we didn't have any quinceaneras. <laughs> we would not fucking anything here. We wouldn't have Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> <laughs> no California burrito. Oh my God. That's another thing that we missed. Mm. <laughs> Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> As a as a Mexican American, uh, I do not celebrate it's that. Our at most all. important holiday when you do. <laughs> I stayed home. Actually, I worked. <laughs> I I did too, and I forgot it was Cinco de Mayo until um, someone yeah. mentioned it somewhere, and I was like, "Oh yeah." You're like, "Oh, oh. forgot." Anyway, <laughs> what are we going to be talking about today? Um, thank you for getting us back on track. Today, mm-hmm. I'm really excited because it's a case in Australia. <gasps> in Oz, oh, my God. Australia. Down, down under? under. Oh, <laughs> Jinx, you owe me a turkey oh, leg. Oh, oh I got it. you. <laughs> yes, down under. This is a really spooky case, actually, because it's un- technically unsolved, I think, and unexplained. Um, my favorite i know i think that this is also this episode is probably going to be the most like uh recent one or recent like instance uh i mean obviously the most recent one because it's like the most recent episode that's coming out but i mean (laughs) the time period it it takes place in the 2000s so we're moving away from the like uh 1800s early 1900s we're moving out of that time period i mean we're not just doing old shit see i promise you we're we're Gen Z. We're Gen Z. <laughs> we like the new stuff. But this is a story that I think a lot of Australians know. It's about um, a ship or a boat. What happened is that in April of 2007, this derelict boat showed up off the Great Barrier Reef. No one knows what happened to the crew. Oh. Um, still no one knows what happened. So it's really spooky, really creepy. Um... This vessel was called the Kaz 2, 
the three-man crew she originally left with had seemingly disappeared without a trace. To this day, the fate of the three men is unknown. There's been tons of theories and speculation as to what happened to them, but we still really have no idea. Literally no evidence has been found of these men since they disappeared back in 2007. So they're just gone, vanished off the face of the fucking earth, which is so, so scary. That's scary. I'm excited to hear what happened mm, well. or what the theories are. I know. We'll get into it. Let me tell you about this boat first. Mm-hmm. So the Kaz 2, I don't know where the name came from, but it's called the Kaz 2. I don't know what happened to the Kaz 1, but we're on 2. <laughs> she was built in 1989, so she was about 18 years old at the time of the incident. Um, it was fairly new. Right? I, well, I don't know, honestly. <laughs> for boats, I really don't know what the shelf life for a boat is. The shelf life. I'm not sure what the best buy date for a boat is. Oh, God. Hopefully, it was still good. Maybe. There's a couple things. Oh, oh okay. But she was a 10.6 meter long fiberglass catamaran yacht, um, 35 foot in American Wow. Some sources report it as 9.8 meters long, but the coronial inquest that I got a lot of this info from lists it as 10.6, and I trust that a little bit more. So, 35 foot long fiberglass catamaran yacht, uh, 5.2 meters or 17 feet at the beam, which is like the widest part of the hull, mm-hmm. with a 1.2 meter or 4 foot draft. The draft is just the distance from the waterline to the bottom of the boat, so right. where you can't see the boat anymore to the very bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pretty shallow for a sailboat. This is one of the reasons why people like catamarans. And what a catamaran is, is a sailboat that has two holes instead of one. And it's connected by a bridge deck. So think of like a rectangle with a hole in the bottom of it. That's kind of what a catamaran looks like. I'm not good at explaining shapes. But imagine, well, how about this? Imagine like two small sailboats connected by like a big wide bridge okay it's kind of like that but with one sail on it instead of two uh-huh. okay i can i can visualize that yeah i hope you can hear those kids screaming outside um also why the fuck are they outside it's almost 9 p.m <laughs> anyway they're, they're having fun i guess so let them have fun that's true have fun kids they're outside that's that's pretty good <laughs> Catamarans are a really popular fishing and pleasure vessel due to their um, greater stability and that shallow draft, like I mentioned, compared to monohull vessels. This makes them very easy to maneuver. They're able to go places other uh, other sailboats aren't. They're also very spacious, and they can actually sail faster than single-hull vessels. So a lot of people like them. They're becoming more and more popular. It's like a very, you know, stereotypic rich thing that rich people have, like, oh... I left, I left my other Bentley keys on my oh. catamaran. <laughs> Got to take the yacht. Got to. <laughs> Where is this party? Oh, 20 minutes away. I suppose I'll take the catamaran. <laughs> she was powered by a single 38 horsepower diesel engine. And the interior had a living space that consisted of three cabins, like little bedrooms, basically. Mm-hmm. And a central, I've seen it called either a salon or a saloon. It's basically just like the little common area. I'm going to call it a saloon because I like saloon better. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get a little technical right oh, now. No. I know. <laughs> just a little technical. <laughs> she was powered by something called a stern drive, uh-huh. which is, now hold on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's an in-drive propulsion system. All this means is that the motor and the parts around the motor are just like contained within the hull. Okay. So you can't see them outside of the boat, basically. Right. It makes the boat look a lot sleeker. Yeah. 
and the entire drive moves when steering. So there's not like uh, not a traditional rudder, I guess, because this whole apparatus just kind of moves. The propeller on this thing hangs out the back of the boat, just like any other boat. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this, this particular piece of equipment on this boat, because the coronial findings mention a maintenance defect here. Now, with this type of propulsion system, the entire apparatus is able to be swung up above the waterline and lowered back down into its normal position, which kind of think of like a normal motorboat with that big like black motor Mm -hmm. hanging off the back, how people can sometimes like lift it up and down. It's kind of similar to that. This is very useful on a sailboat because when it's raised, it reduces drag while sailing by the wind. The defect here was a corroded cable that maintains the lowered position of the stern drive. Mm -hmm. Basically, if this cable's compromised, the stern drive could be locked in that upward position, which is bad because that can severely hinder the boat's ability to reverse or decelerate because, again, your propeller is up in the air. Right. And uh, reversing and slowing down are, uh, I'd say, fairly important things mm-hmm. on any kind of vehicle. Oh, yeah. So of course. This is just something to, <laughs> this is just something to note. <laughs> the fact that the, 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 oh, shoot, what was I going to say? <laughs> and then the, oh, oh no, what is it? <laughs> it was found in the Great Barrier Reef, mm-hmm. which is a reef. Yeah. Which is shallow. Yes. So you can't decelerate. There is a theory connected to that, actually. So good, good thinking. Yeah. Uh, context clues, my friend. <laughs> context clues. So this is just something to note because maybe this could have factored into what happened. Possibly, we mm-hmm. don't know, but maybe. So previously, before the Cows Two was in the possession of the gentleman I'm about to talk about, it was owned by a man named Graham Douglas. Uh, he actually lived on board for the two years he owned the boat. He eventually moved ashore in the months before he sold it, and when he did sell it, it was to a man named uh, Des Batten. In 2006, he sold it for 80000 U.S. dollars. I don't know what that wow. is in Australian money, but I think it's a lot, yeah. yeah. At the time, uh, Douglas determined that it was in good condition. So, things were all good, despite that little defect, you know, the ship was in perfect health everything Mm -hmm. was fine as he asserted to these men this guy he sold it to des batten let me tell you about him his full name is derek charles batten but he went by des um he was 56 years old at the time he was originally from perth western australia all the other two men i'm going to mention all these men are from perth nice um he had been semi-retired for the past four to five years he was a floor layer previously which i think is just like a tile guy kind of um, he had retired for a few reasons. He had a bad back, which I can imagine if you spend your life stooped over yeah. the ground, it's yeah. going to fuck you up a little bit. Glad he could retire early, though. I know. Good for him. <laughs> um, he also had a heart attack at some oh. point. <laughs> he was also taking medication for high cholesterol, and he was diabetic. So he had a oh. lot going on. Overall, though, he was t- determined to be in good health. Okay. And the inquest actually describes him as, quote, reasonably fit for a man of his age, and he was a reasonably competent swimmer. Hmm. So he seems like he's doing okay. Yeah. He had been married to his wife, Jenny, for almost 30 years, and they have two sons together, who I think were both in their 20s at the time of the incident. So two grown sons. Um, that's another really sad thing. All of these men had, uh, like, long-time spouses and children. Oh, so, no. yeah, it's really tragic. 
Uh, Des was a pretty experienced boater, mostly with motorboats. Mm-hmm. He'd acquired a recreational skipper's license, skipper's just like a captain, mm-hmm. uh, and a marine radio license. And he had been around boats for around 25 years, according to his wife. The Kaz, though, was, I think, his first sailboat. Because after he bought it, he and his wife Jenny took up sailing courses, and they actually sailed around the Whitsunday Islands twice without any serious issues. So they were, I think he was still kind of learning the ropes when it came to, I mean, mm-hmm. literally, for sailing. Yeah. Um, he also further pursued a coastal navigation course, a radar course, and a first aid course. Very smart, very helpful. Yeah. He was also an active member of a volunteer marine rescue organization while he lived in Perth. So, obviously, this guy is qualified to be yeah. on a boat. He's, yeah. I, that's something I'm going to talk about. None of these men are, like, novices when it comes to sailing. They all mm-hmm. seem like they knew what they were doing when they got on this boat. This wasn't, like, a spur of the moment. Oh, I bought a boat. Let's just go. I'm sure, how hard can it be? <laughs> no. They, they knew. They took their time. Exactly. They learned how to yeah. use it, what to do, you know, stuff exactly. like that. They were prepared. Right. Or were they? Oh, we'll see. Dun, dun, dun. I know. Uh, according to Jenny, safety was Dez's first priority always, and he would insist on performing man overboard drills. She asserts that he would have been prepared in a real scenario. Keep that in mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Right. Who else was on the crew was another man named Peter Tunstead. He was 69 years old, also from Perth. He was a retired small businessman. He had been married to his wife, Frances, for 42 years. Oh, no. I know. And they have four daughters together. Aww. Yeah. Um, he seemed to be very health conscious. Uh, as I was reading about him, he kind of gave me, like, a Chris Traeger vibe. <laughs> <laughs> he was also, like Des, taking medication for high cholesterol, but he would go on daily bike rides. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a health examination with his doctor before he went on the trip, and the doctor cleared him of any health concerns at all. He prepared for the voyage by taking a navigation course, a first aid course, and uh, acquiring a recreational boat license. Okay. Apparently, he had already he was already skilled in sea mapping, and I knew sea mapping as like charting the ocean floor. I don't know if in the the, the coroner's request uh, inquest doesn't really explain what sea <laughs> mapping is. I don't know if that actually means like sea floor mapping or like charting a course over water. No idea, but. Something that he can do, at least, mm-hmm. is sea mapping. <laughs> um, and he had been sailing with his brother, who was also on this boat, since they were 18 years old. So, uh, again, experienced men. They yeah. both also worked in volunteer sea rescue radio rooms. Okay. Now, Peter, something interesting. He knew how to swim, but apparently preferred not to. Oh, okay. Remember that, too. Okay, okay. The last member of this crew is James Alfred Tunstead, who went by Jim. Uh, he was 63 years old. He's the younger brother to Peter Tunstead. Mm-hmm. He was a self-employed truck driver. He had been married to his wife, Marjorie, for 44 years. And they had wow. five children together. He was actually born with a degenerative disease that affected his hip and kind of, and uh, gave him a limp. Mm-hmm. But he still remained really active. He used to play competitive football when he was younger. Um, he regularly played tennis. He sailed in skiff races. Skiffs are just like small boats. Mm-hmm. So altogether, these men are clearly not quite novices, but I don't think quite experts yeah. either. At least they don't have a lot of experience on a vessel the size of the Cads. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of semi-new territory for them. And I'm wondering if maybe 
possibly they could have maybe overestimated their abilities when they oh. took on this. Um, you know, it happens. Um, I mean, okay, they all had a pretty good idea of how to like run a boat what to do you know stuff like that they were all skilled they Mm -hmm. weren't like like you said they weren't just like i bought a boat let's (laughs) go let's do it you know they all had like what these people were like like at least the brothers were like 60 something and they were doing like they were being on boats since Since they were were 18 18. yeah like that's a long time so i wouldn't doubt that they were just like oh this could just be like how you would you know operate like a smaller boat right like how much different could it really be it's a boat yeah and i get i've fallen into that trap before with different things so i can understand that how you can it's very i'm not saying that these men are at fault at all in their disappearance i'm just saying i think it's very easy to be like well you know what's really the difference they clearly prepared they clearly were like Mm -hmm. you know reading up doing everything they needed to do taking the courses but yeah again it's it's, it's like going from a car to like to like a semi yeah it's like you take the courses you know how to operate one but mm-hmm. you're still new to it exactly so. when you're in this when you're in mm-hmm. it it's different yeah I, yeah so the reason these men were sailing together was actually largely circumstance um des and jenny both moved from perth to a place called south yonderup in 2003 which is south of north yonderup and perth <laughs> Well. <laughs> <laughs> and while they were living there, they became close with their new neighbors, Peter and Francis Tunstead. Wow. Des had mentioned his plans to sail from the Whitsunday Islands, which are located off the uh, coast of Queensland on the other other mm-hmm. side of Australia. Um, he had mentioned this. He had mentioned this to Peter because this was a trip that was originally meant to be undertaken with his wife Jenny. They ended up reconsidering this plan because neither of them were very comfortable with solo sailing if something happened to the other. Des, in particular, was worried about Jenny having to man the ship on her own if he became sick or injured, which I think also says, you know, and we'll get into it a little bit later, these men, I think, were aware of their limitations. Mm -hmm. So, the Battens, Des and Jenny, agreed that it would be best to bring on the Tunstead brothers so that that way they would have a three-man crew. These other two they knew were pretty experienced when it came to boats. So, you know, Des was like, hey, I'm going to make this trip. <laughs> you want to come? They were like, hell yeah, we do. Hell yeah. And that was that. Now, this trip was the culmination of several months of planning. Again, this wasn't like a spur of the moment. Let's, let's, <laughs> how hard could it be? Let's just get on the ship and go. Not at all. Uh, in preparation for the voyage, like I said, these men undertook all these other courses and trainings to ensure a really smooth and safe journey. They daily would discuss the plotting of the course that they had to take. They had their charts that were being stored on two laptops that they brought with them, um, checked by more experienced sailors. The sailors presumably cleared their route. I don't think that these men would have proceeded without that, especially Des being as safety-minded as he seems. So... The men flew to the Sundays on April 11th, 2007. It was a Wednesday. And there's a little back and forth here. So they flew to the Sundays, where they landed on Hamilton Island, which is on the south end of the Sundays. Then from there, they took a ferry to Shoot Harbor, which is on the mainland. And from there, they hitched a ride with a marina worker to the Kaz. Wow. So a little back and forth. <laughs> 
Um, it's noted at this time that they were making jokes about Peter's aversion to swimming and their own limited abilities as sailors. The Coronial Inquest noted that they seemed, like I said, aware of their limitations to be, you know, joking and teasing each other about it. So this definitely, I don't think at all was anything that they took lightly. I don't think that, you know what, I'm going to attract what I said. I don't think that they overestimated their abilities or underestimated the difficulty. I think that, mm, I think that it's like hiking when you're out on the mm-hmm. ocean where things can go really wrong really, really fast. fast. Doesn't have anything to do with how much you know, how experienced you are. It's you're in a completely unpredictable environment. Mm-hmm. Unpredictable things can happen. Things can go south for you. Yeah. So it's just it's one of those things that I think, you know. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm so articulate. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> So the crew provisioned the boat for a two-day trip. They told their families they would reach Townsville, which is uh, a little ways north of them, within about two to three days, during which time they would likely have very limited cell reception or any kind of phone communication. The boat was equipped with a VHF two-way radio. VHF stands for very high frequency. The only thing with this radio is that receiving and transmitting signal was limited basically to line of sight. So... Fairly short range. Apparently, they tried to have their equipment augmented and upgraded before they left to compensate for this, but it would have required the boat to be out of the water to get the work done, so it was just never implemented. Now, overall, this voyage from where they were in the Whitsundays to Perth, Australia, was projected to take about eight weeks, which is a long time, especially given that these men were not going to be sailing at night, so they were going to be finding anchorages along the way, so that they could stay for the night and sail again in the morning. So, really long time. Eight weeks. That's very Jesus. long. That's two months, basically. That is two months, yeah. Wow. Now, they initially disembarked from Shute Harbor at 10 a.m. on the morning of April 14th. Some uh, A witness noted that their boat fenders were still out, which was weird to me. Because what boat fenders are, they're like these big balloon-shaped things that hang off the side of a boat. So that when it's... Uh, in like a port or a wharf it doesn't yeah it stops the hole from like banging up against the side of it some people also when they're like boarding between boats they'll have those out so again the holes don't like Mm -hmm. crack against each other it's just weird that they were out because it's normally protocol for them to be brought in or so i thought um later on someone does say that for vessels of this size sometimes they were just kept out it could be that it could be again that these men are new to this kind of boat And they just left them out just because they didn't know or they didn't think. So Mm -hmm. either way, just interesting that they were out. That also comes back later. They were excited to leave. They were. They were like, like, woo, (laughs) our journey begins. (laughs) Road trip. (laughs) In the ocean. Boys trip. (laughs) For real. They all clinked their cocktails together. Yeah. They're like, spring break. (laughs) They have glasses of champagne. (laughs) On their (laughs) catamaran. But this uh, departure was short-lived because they very quickly ran into difficulty with their computer navigation system. So Des contacted Douglas, the former owner, because they were still in touch, and they rendezvoused at a place called Abel Point Marina in Airlie Beach. Um, This is just north of where they departed. Mm -hmm. They met up sometime in the early afternoon. A few things happened here. For one, Douglas did help them fix the computers, and he assisted them in plotting out the first leg of their journey by manually inputting waypoints in the system. He also, Douglas, also saw that they were kind of frustrated and very eager to get going. 
So he was like, hey guys, how about instead of trying to head straight for Townsville, which is, you know, a few days away, you head for Cape Gloucester, which is a shorter course. It'll let them make some progress, so they'll, you know, get some of that frustration out, and they'll be able to move a little bit at least. So mm-hmm. Douglas says that the course he told them about was very close to shore, and the crew knew where they were going. The voyage should have taken only about two to three hours. He also noted while he was there that the boat's batteries were low on charge, and that the crew at that point had not yet used their uh, shore power to charge them, which is just like extra stored power they have. Mm-hmm. So he recommended that they charge them and run the engine the next day to top them off. He also recommended they check in with the local volunteer marine rescue organizations as they sailed along the coast. That's just good practice, letting them know, hey, you know, we're in the area, we're sailing, just mm-hmm. in case anything happens, and unfortunately something does happen. Mm-hmm. Which the uh, volunteer marine rescue organization who um, got their last call... Interesting. Oh, <laughs> I'll say okay. that. Anyway, overall, Douglas seemed kind of wary of their journey. Because, again, their very eager attitude and this still lack of experience they had. Mm-hmm. He actually recommended they not leave the Sundays yet. One source quotes him as saying, quote, I said, if you're not ready to go, don't go. But I guess they felt like they were ready. Because the next day, they departed Abel Point Marina between 7 and 8 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, April 15th. Uh, Peter Tunstead did speak to his wife, Frances, via telephone that morning just after they departed. It would have been 7.30 Perth time, so her time, and 9.30 Whitsunday's time. She says they were in good spirits. This is something that was corroborated by other witnesses that day who said they saw them leave the port in good spirits. He told her everything was going well, which we know is not 100% true, but <laughs> I think he just didn't want to freak her out yeah, or anything. Or, you know, It was like just little things, so he didn't want to... <laughs> Uh, and the other two men were teasing Peter about a foot injury that he had, I guess. And they were all in the process of brewing their morning coffee. So very normal, very chill day. This would be the last time the men's families would ever hear from them. Oh my god. Now no one knows definitively what happened after this point. All that is known for certain is that when maritime authorities eventually boarded the vessel on April 20th, Des Batten, James Tunstead, and Peter Tunstead were not on board. Where the fuck were they? (laughs) It's only been like three days. Exactly. Right away this happened. That's so insane. That's so, yeah. That's crazy. So it seems the last known contact anyone had with the boat was a radio operator with the Bowen VNMR, which is a volunteer marine rescue. It was a man named Ivan Orms. Now, Ivan... (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with Ivan? (laughs) Well, his accounts for the timing of the call aren't super consistent. Oh, no. Now, he claims he had manned the base's radio on the morning of Sunday, April 15th when they left but received a transmission from a vessel believed to be the Kaz 2 at 6.45 p.m. that evening while he was at home. Why he was taking calls at home, I don't know. (laughs) Ivan, leave work at work, my guy. Come on, you're at home. He's like, I got overtime. (laughs) I do it for funsies. They're like, Ivan, we need you at work. And now he's like, can I just sit at home and just listen? (laughs) They're like, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Now, he claims that whoever he spoke to said there were three people on board, 
Their position was George Point, which I tried looking up. I had to I, I had to fucking Sherlock this and deduce <laughs> where exactly this was because when I would Google Maps it, it wouldn't come up. So I was like, where the hell is this? I figured out it's this peninsula between Olden Island and Saddleback Island. That means fuck nothing to us because we're not Australian, yeah. but any Australian <laughs> listeners or anyone who's just familiar with that part of Australia, you'll know. <laughs> like over here trying to like put a pinpoint yeah. on the map and I have no idea where in Australia yeah, that would be. Point, of course, between Olden Island and Saddleback. I'm, I'm like, I know where Perth really. is, so like, somewhere, uh, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere near there, there maybe. <laughs> I don't but know. Again, actually, I don't know if I, uh, I think I, I did. Let me, let me clarify too. Mm-hmm. So this boat had never left, um, the eastern coast of Australia in Queensland. It was in the Whit Sundays. So they were essentially taking it from there back home to Perth. So right now we're on we're off of the coast of Queensland on the east. Okay. Yeah. And they were gonna sail back west where Perth is. Okay. So again, going all the way around, that would have been that eight week journey. Yeah. Which is crazy to even think about sailing around half a fucking continent. Oh my yeah. god. I mean Australia's big. Australia's pretty big. I wanna go so fucking bad. Oh my god. I wanna go see a spider. <laughs> You know, I do too. I'm sure they can't be that bad. <laughs> but yeah, so again, he claims that there were the three people on board. Their position was George Point, and they were headed for Perth. So we can probably assume that this was, in fact, the Kaz 2. Mm-hmm. Now, Ivan, uh, when it comes to... Because again, the, there's some discrepancy here in the times, as we'll find out. He explains that he might have actually taken the call that morning, but he only logged it three days later when he heard the vessel was found and just got confused about the time. Why he didn't log it the first time he heard it, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I assume it's common practice to log every time you get a transmission from a boat. Again, Ivan, what's happening? This is also very strange if he did in fact get the call at 6.45pm since Airlie Beach, where they departed from, Airlie Beach to George Point that's only about a two and a half hour voyage. If they left that morning at around nine, what the fuck were they doing that entire time? Yeah. Some people have speculated maybe they were just fishing that whole time, possibly. Um, I mean, again, it seemed like they were really eager to get going and 645, it's going to start getting dark. You're going to want to find Anchorage soon because they don't want to sail at night. Yeah. So what is that about? I think that Ivan's just wrong. Um, <laughs> I think Ivan's just confused. Yeah, I think so. In the coroner's inquest, he actually, when he was called to testify, he was like, listen, I'm, I've got a really bad memory and I'm not that smart. <laughs> and they no. were like, all right, sure. Poor Ivan. So. But you would think that someone whose like, job is to, you know, log all yeah. of that, that he would at least... Be a little uh, more like, diligent. Yeah. Careful. I mean, I don't want to. I don't, don't want to get bring down his character, yeah, but no, not at all. But it's just strange to me. Yeah. Just don't get me wrong. I'm one to put things off too, <laughs> as you all know. <laughs> but it, it's just very. It's just weird. Yeah. Anyway, after this last contact, all we have are scattered reports of sightings in the days following the departure from Able Point. A vessel that may have the may have been the Kaz was spotted by a woman named Isabel Wheeler who was fishing in a place called Champagne Bay. Ooh. Now there's a Champagne Bay by Perth. Um, again, I 
I spent so much time in this episode oh. trying to figure out the geography. It's like, what? Wait, but they're not there. <laughs> they like teleported I, or I know, something. Exactly. <laughs> Champagne Bay, I think, is on Thomas Island, which is part of the Whitsundays, possibly. Okay. I think. Uh, if, my, if I'm using, if I'm using my detective skills here correctly, <laughs> I believe. Uh, she says that she thinks she spotted it on the morning of April fifteenth, which is when they departed. She says she noticed a large white sailboat pass George Point, which again is, Ivan says that's the ship that contacted him, said that they were in that position. She says she saw this boat head west for Gloucester Passage, sailing between Eshelby and Rattray Island. At some point between those two islands, the boat changed course by 90 degrees and sailed straight out to sea. Oh, that's a lot. That's That's, very weird. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the opposite direction of where they are trying to go. And I don't think the it would have been that. I don't know. I feel like the weather would have definitely like they would have been like, oh yeah, the weather. If yeah. it was like so bad, yeah, to make a you know a ship turn ninety degrees, right? And there are some reports. I'm gonna get into it a little bit. The mm-hmm. weather at that time was like not terrible not perfect sailing conditions but not at all you know horrible yeah choppy seas strong winds nothing yeah. like that it's just it's certainly strange mm-hmm. and it would freak me out um it's just really that's just like such a creepy picture <laughs> in my head to see a ship yeah. just normally sailing heading along the coast and then suddenly it veers straight out to sea yeah i mean i at the time she didn't think anything of it because you know it's just a boat she didn't know where they were going but Mm -hmm. knowing now what we know that's very weird yeah um she however could not definitively identify this boat as the cas 2 Mm -hmm. however douglas again he's still here Mm -hmm. hanging around the area Mm -hmm. he made a stop at dingo beach which is nearby that nearly like the Gloucester Passage area. Mm-hmm. He made a stop there on the way to uh, a resort that he told the men to head to as like anchorage for the night. Um, and he expected that he would see their boat pass when he got there. He had not spotted them during his stop there. And after continuing on to the resort, there was still no sign of them. So he attempted to call James's mobile phone. This was around 2 p.m. and no one picked up. He assumed the men had continued on to a place called Gray's Bay. That's north of Bowen. This is a spot that they had mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Now, this could line up with Isabel Wheeler's testimony. Because if he was at Dingo Beach at this time, and like she said, she saw them head out to sea, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have seen them because obviously they, they, they were going the other direction. Right. So, it could have, I think it probably was the cast that she saw. Mm-hmm. A man named Matthew Howie spotted a vessel that resembled the Cas 2 on Monday, April 16th, the day after they left. He alleges to have seen it in a similar position, as reported by Isabel Wheeler, but says that it continued to sail towards Gloucester Island, and he didn't see it change course. However, I think he only watched it for a few minutes. I don't know how long Isabel watched it, but I think she was out there for a little bit, so... She was fishing? I think she was, yeah. Was the other guy fishing? No. Or doing something? He, I think, was just on the shore. Oh, okay. So, his neighbor, however, a guy named Ian Stonehouse, confirmed Howie's sighting of the vessel at this location. He recalls seeing the vessel sail out to sea around early afternoon. So, I I think that these three are all seeing the same boat. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's the Kaz is up in the air. Yeah. But the thing is, it's not quite the same boat. Oh, <laughs> Because Isabel, she said that she saw it on the 15th, 
These men say they saw it on the 16th. So there's some discrepancy here. The coroner, who, whose inquest I got all this information uh-huh. from, a guy named Michael Barnes, he's unconvinced that these men saw the boat on the day they said they did. He thinks that Isabel Wheeler's testimony placing the boat and that location on the 15th means that for Howie and Stonehouse to have seen it in the same position, it would not have moved for 24 hours. Right. Which, I, why would it just sit there? That doesn't make sense. That's interesting. Yeah. So either they got the date like really wrong. Yeah. Either they did or she did. Or she did. Yeah. Because I mean, she saw it, you know, sail to sea. Yeah. And who was it? Howie? Yeah. He saw it also sail out to sea. So Mm -hmm. it's like, what's going on? What's going on? Yeah. So I think one of them here is just getting the date wrong. Yeah. um, Because again, if they did see it on the 16th, that means it would have been in the same place for 24 Mm -hmm. hours. Which wouldn't have made sense because from that position, they would have been at Cape Gloucester where they were heading in about an hour. So why would they just sit there when they're an hour from yeah. where they're trying to head? So yeah, I think that the dates are just mixed up. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of inconsistencies here. You can tell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> things are really weird. Now, two coral fishing boats had reported seeing the vessel near Darley Reef, which is approximately 55 nautical miles north of Bowen, which I think is a little further north from where they went from where they headed out of. Uh, the crew of these vessels noted that the way the boat moved through the reef led them to believe it was being purposely navigated. The coronial inquest states that the GPS info suggests the boat was unmanned at this point oh. and was able to navigate the reefs and shoals because, again, that catamaran it has that shallow draft, so it makes uh-huh. it easy to maneuver these shallower waters. Uh-huh. And just the luck of the movement of the tide. Which is kind of creepy to me. That, that the, is the very like creepy. I don't like itself. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and through the coral and yeah. everything. That's, I mean, I don't really know how when I reefs are, yeah. but I feel like that would be kind of like, that's not difficult, boat. but like not easy. No, not at all. That's, that, that's, that's creepy. That is really, I, when I read that, like seeing that, oh, yeah, they saw it. yeah, I did. <laughs> seeing that they were like, yeah, they saw it sailing through. And then the coroner was like, but we know that no one was on the boat at that point. That's like, that's, ooh. I don't like that. Oof, right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the skipper of one of these other vessels, a guy named Captain Gavin Howland, he reported that on Monday the 16th, he and his crew spotted a boat with a torn jib sail drifting north-northeast with the current between narrow passages and over reefs. The cast who was found with a torn jib sail. Now, the okay. jib is like this big triangular sail that hangs uh-huh. off the front of the boat. So, very likely, this was the same boat. Howland came within about 50 meters of the boat and didn't see anyone on board, which we know now there probably wasn't. Mm-hmm. He also noted it was odd to see a sailboat in an area known for shallow water and shoals. It's not, you know, people wouldn't this is an area you go with a boat because of that. It's kind of yeah. treacherous for a boat to come through here. Yeah. He did not attempt to contact the boat since he had no reason to believe the crew was in need of assistance. And because of his own rule of keeping a wide berth from other vessels, I think in the, in the source, he says like, it's just my rule. I don't go near other boats, which I can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now on Wednesday, April 18th, three days after they departed mm-hmm. around 3:45 PM, a Coast Watch aircraft spotted the cows to adrift in an easterly direction near the Great Barrier Reef, some 80 nautical miles off the northern, northeast coast of Townsville. Remember, Townsville where, is where they're headed. Mm-hmm. So they're some ways north of Airly Beach where they left, northeast out by the Great Barrier Reef. So they're a little ways out to sea. 
senior, I love what they call police officers over there, <laughs> senior constable, wow. Jason Jesse of the Townsville Water Police, which is what they're actually called. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm with the water police, mate, <laughs> was informed of the boat. Uh, he served as assistant search and rescue coordinator here. The aircraft's air-to-ship radio was inoperable, so they were unable to establish radio contact with the boat or anyone upon the boat when they found it. Numerous flyovers, however, could not spot anybody on board. Hmm. A search and rescue mission was not immediately initiated based on the information available to authorities at the time. They didn't think that you know, these men were missing or were in any kind of distress. So they were like, okay, the boat is just, just there. Everyone's taking a nap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, ah, we'll get to it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> now, the Townsville Coast Guard reported having not received any distress calls and attempts to hail the vessel were met with silence. Australian Search and Rescue provided Constable Jesse with something called a net water movement model which is really cool. It basically uses, like, real-time data to determine the best search area based on, like, environmental conditions. Yeah, Yeah. so they're like, okay, if it would have been here, where would it have, you know, drifted from? Where would the men be? Stuff like that. Yeah. On Thursday afternoon, the boat was deemed dead in the water, which means it's inoperable, it's immobile. At this point, they're like, okay, we need to check it out. Mm -hmm. So efforts were made to board the boat and assess the situation. A rescue officer with Queensland Emergency Management Office, a guy named Corey Benson, was lowered from an aircraft into the water around the boat. He wasn't able to be lowered directly onto the boat because it was kind of like tilting in a weird way mm-hmm. so he couldn't board it. Uh, he had some difficulty boarding because the way it was moving and because he had actually become tangled in a fishing line that was hanging off the port side stern. This line is believed to have belonged to Peter Tunstead's fishing rod. And we know that because of something else they find on board. Now, the engine was idling in neutral. Usually, this is done to charge the batteries for lighting and navigation equipment. Inside the cabin was a wallet and a newspaper dated the 15th. It was lying on the table in the saloon. And three beds that had clearly been slept in. A small, empty bottle of liquor was found on the floor outside the port forward cabin. And within the cockpit were towels, shirts, hats, socks, sunglasses, and a cup with coffee dregs in it. I don't. I didn't know what dregs were. Apparently, it's just like the leftover nasty stuff at the bottom of the coffee cup. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> so some, someone had drank out of this, obviously. It was a used cup, essentially. Uh-huh. Even creepier, food and utensils were left out on the table still. Huh. Like, they had quite literally just walked off the boat. Got up from dinner, breakfast, whatever. Got off the boat. That's creepy. Yeah. Now, some sources mention knives being found strewn about the floor. Uh, And I think that this officer who boarded the boat, Corey Benson, uh, he's the one who said that he got on board. His testimony is actually really funny because he's just kind of scared shitless the whole time he's on the (laughs) boat. Because he's like, I don't know if there's someone still here. (laughs) Um, But he, I think, mentioned like finding some knives on the floor. In the coroner's inquest, he says that there were none on the floor, just some butter knives in the sink and a sheath of fishing knives on a bench in the galley, which isn't unusual or out of place. Yeah. On the deck, there was a blue coffee cup with coffee or tea still in it. Uh, a starboard side hatch was open on the foredeck with the secondary anchor rope nearby it. A skiff was affixed to the boat's stern. Again, a skiff is a small boat, so they're a lifeboat, basically. Uh-huh. And the boat's fenders were still hanging over the side. Their laptops were also still tracking their progress. 
two mobile phones and a wristwatch were left behind. The cabin and deck were largely neat and tidy. There weren't any kind of signs of a struggle or a fight, nothing like that. There was also a camera found on board with video of the crew, presumably the morning they disappeared uh, at approximately 10.05 a.m. So this is coming from that morning, April 15th. Uh-huh. On the video, James is behind the camera. We can hear him narrating. Des is at the helm, and he has that blue coffee mug beside him that they find on the deck. Uh, Peter is fishing from his seat on the aft stairway of the porthole, which again is why I think that fishing line is Peter's, because that's where mm-hmm. they found that line entangled. Mm-hmm. The aft safety wires are disconnected, which those are just the things that lead to like the stairs on the back of the boat. Those are just open, so you just have open access to where Peter's sitting, basically. The jib is set wide out on the port side, by a whisker pole. This is getting very technical again, but <laughs> in case you forgot, the jib is that big triangular sail off the front of the boat. A whisker pole is just like a pole that projects from the mast, so the big the big pole in the center of the boat, <laughs> to the corner of a sail. And the mainsail is set on the starboard side. So they are sailing with the wind right now, the engine's not on. A long white rope is seen trailing behind the boat. What I think this is, is, um, I mentioned that there's the secondary anchor rope that was found by that hatch Mm -hmm. on deck. I think that that was that just like brought in. The fenders are still hanging from the safety rails on both sides. At one point, the camera pans 360 degrees showing the surrounding islands. This helped a lot later, actually, um, because the investigation was able to pinpoint their exact location in the area between Gumbrel Island, Armit Island, and Grassy Island. This is an area between the Whitsundays and Cape Gloucester. So but right in that route where they were, they were mm-hmm. heading. You can also see in the video that the sea is choppy and a squall or like a little storm can be seen ahead in the distance. Uh, James's shirt and sunglasses that were found on a seat behind the back deck later on, they're not seen in the video. So at some point after oh. the video ends, he takes those off and they're left there. And big thing, none of the men are wearing life jackets. Always wear your life jacket, no matter how strong of a swimmer you are, how confident you are in your boating skills. Always wear a life jacket, everybody. Very important. Because again, like we said, on a boat, things can go very wrong very fast. It will save your life. Hence, life jacket. Wow. Poetic. (laughs) Thank you. I was working on that. Uh, investigators were able to identify the registration number. And through that, they were able to locate Graham Douglas and he informed the police of the crew's identity. So on Friday, April 20th, the CAS-2 was towed back to Townsville. There was a single firearm found on board. It was in a sealed container underneath Dez's bed. It was registered, and it belonged to Dez. All of its ammo was accounted for, so nothing suspicious there. This is kind of creepy. Uh-oh. A calendar was found in the saloon that showed all the days up to April 14th had been crossed out. <laughs> April 15th on the calendar just said, left early. And it's not crossed out. Oh. So we can, from that, assume, yeah, that the 15th is the day that whatever happened Uh happened. Yeah. So two two of the forensic officers who examined the craft on April 21st, the following day, a Sergeant Bardell and Sergeant Malloy, they determined they could find no evidence of foul play or any kind of third-party involvement. No fingerprints were taken of the scene. This is something the families took a lot of issue with, and I don't blame them, um, because I would want every base to be covered if it was my family. While the CAS was being examined in Townsville, 
Australian search and rescue, along with several VMR and Coast Guard organizations, conducted an exhaustive land and sea search via air and watercraft. The help of a Navy aircraft was enlisted. Infrared scans were done during night searches. Numerous island and reef systems were searched. In one day of searching, aircraft covered over 1,000 nautical square miles. Wow. So this is a really big yeah. search. Yeah. At one point during the uh, search, a guy named Dr. Paul Luckin, who is a survival time expert. When I heard that, I was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I mean what is survival time? Uh, survival time just refers to exactly what it sounds like, how long a person can survive in a given scenario. Mm-hmm. So they consulted him, and he believed, given the scenario that the men went into the water on the 15th or 16th without any flotation devices, it's unlikely they would be found alive after four to five days in the water at that point. Wow. Yeah. No trace of the men was ever found. And on April 21st at 4 p.m., almost a week after the men went missing, the search was officially called off. Efforts briefly resumed on the 23rd after our boy Ivan came forward <laughs> with his information, but it only lasted until the 25th when still no evidence was found. Uh, the Batten and Tunstead families continued the search after the authorities ceased their efforts. They had actually chartered boats to continue searching the coastline, oh. and they spent like a lot of money and time mm-hmm. really trying to find these three. The coroner asserts in his report that the search efforts followed all protocol and procedure, and the decision to terminate the search was not taken lightly. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have issue with this search, though, because they don't think it was long enough. They don't think they were thorough enough, the families yeah. especially. I cannot at all blame them. Again, if it was my family, there would be no amount of time, no number of resources mm-hmm. that I think would be enough to, you know, yeah. no no expenses too great, basically. Yeah. Just, like, find them. The only way that they, I think, would have been satisfied is if they found anything. Because they found literally nothing. Yeah, because, I mean, you want some kind of closure. Exactly. Like, I mean, even if you know that they're gone, yeah. like, finding something that can pinpoint them somewhere that right. can maybe at least put you know a story yeah, to it exactly because it's just so weird and open-ended yeah. and that's just like a different type of mm-hmm. of hell to me like it's one thing to lose your husband your father your brother it's another yeah. thing to not know what the fuck happened to them yeah they're just you come up with so many scenarios in your head to and that's even tr- worse yeah. than not knowing mm-hmm. yeah so based on the evidence something happened on April 15th after the men had passed George Point. At the end of his report, Michael Barnes concluded that the three men had met with a tragic accident and were dead. Mm. Let's get into the theories as to what people think happened. The first is, of course, foul play. The authorities ruled this out. Um, Some people think it could have been a robbery gone wrong. I think that's pretty unlikely, given that according to investigators and the reason they didn't dust for fingerprints is because the boat's cabin was fairly neat and tidy if there was a robbery and the men were somehow killed during this why was everything so clean Mm -hmm. there was no blood there was no mess exactly nothing seemed like it had been rummaged through no anything and even if you know let's say that whoever did this did clean up there was phones a wallet a watch a camera two laptops that were left behind yeah what were they taking if not those things? Mm-hmm. So it's just, I, I don't think it was a robbery. Plus, I think there would be some kind of maybe, like, distressed call. Yeah, maybe. Like, I mean, I don't know exactly how that works, but I would I would think that if either someone turned on them, like, out of the three, or right. if, I don't want to say pirates, but, like, let's say pirates. People think 
pirates going to be involved. Yeah, it's like, I feel like, well, you had your phones. Right. And you would probably, I imagine, see the boat coming, too, if it uh-huh. is someone's coming up. So Yeah. So it's like, I feel like there would have been there at least been some, some kind of way, like, maybe, like, well, well, this was in 2007. Yeah. They have flip phones. That's maybe true. a flip phone was open. Yeah. Like, to be like, I'm calling. Be maybe. like, that's kind of suspicious. Right. I don't know. But yeah, just the fact that weird. nothing was taken, I don't yeah. I don't think it was a robbery at all. I don't think so either. Kidnapping is the other thing. And uh, going with the robbery, also, the boat being found with its fenders out led some to speculate that maybe another vessel docked alongside it. That's why the fenders were out. However, like I kind of said, uh, it's not uncommon to leave them out at all times. Right. Someone from the Townsville police said that, that usually small vessels will just leave their fenders out. Mm-hmm. Um and again they were already out when the boat left the marina so it's not like they saw a boat coming and then put them out yeah not likely at least uh and if they were kidnapped for ransom i don't know about that either all these men were retired or semi-retired you know it wasn't like they were super wealthy i mean they did they were able to purchase a boat a, but a boat but i don't think that and that but, was only des and i don't i don't know Plus, that doesn't really, like, I don't know, kidnap for ransom. I mean, like, I feel like, well, they found the, the gun secured. So, mm-hmm. like, what you said, like, I don't think there's any way that they wouldn't have seen a boat coming towards yeah. them. I also think that there would have been messy. Yeah, there would have been struggle, I think. Because these yeah. men, even though they were older, they were still, like, very fit, capable men. So Yeah, and I don't think that if you're kidnapping someone for ransom, you're going to kill them or get rid of them no like if your whole if your whole objective is to get money you're you ain't gonna you ain't gonna do something yeah, <laughs> to people who exactly. you're exactly like that I mean, just, as crude mm. as it sounds you're keeping them alive for the yeah money. like so. no matter what they do you know what i mean at that point you have them right like, tied up and or something. that's the other thing there were no ransom requests that were made to exactly. the families following their disappearance so mm-hmm. that rules that out mm-hmm. some like you kind of said think that maybe they ran afoul of pirates or drug smugglers, but the lack of physical evidence tying any kind of third party to the scene could also rule this possibility out. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's totally unlikely, because again, we just don't know what the fuck happened here, yeah. but to me, it doesn't seem very likely. So how 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 likely is it to be pirates? Like, and I don't I don't know if pirates are I don't know that. Either. <laughs> like that big of an issue in Australia. Like Especially I know over so by like the coast. It's yeah, because I know like in Africa they have like that issue mm-hmm. along the coast. Yeah, but Australia, I'm not certain. I don't know. Another theory is that they staged their disappearance. I don't buy this at all. Um, some think that you know it could have been faked. They faked their disappearance or their death for insurance purposes. The coroner reports that there is no suspicious activity with their accounts, or no suspicious activity with their accounts took place after they vanished. So, again, it doesn't seem like that happened. And again, these men all had longtime spouses and several children. Yeah. It does not seem like they would just abandon them for money. Yeah, and I don't think that, I mean, unless they're, like, really good actors, yeah. I don't think that the wives, all three wives are going to agree to this. Yeah. Or, you know, I don't think all three men are going to agree to this. If mm-hmm. if it means that they're going to, 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, it could be. To but... me, it seemed like they were pretty content. Again, they're like retired, semi-retired. They yeah. have families. They had grandchildren at this point. Why would they, yeah, like, out of the blue, like, well, money time. No, Yeah, it just so. doesn't seem very right. Well, so yeah. how would you, why would you leave a $80,000 boat that you've invested in the middle of yeah. the ocean? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. And all of your phones, your laptops and stuff. Like, yeah. I know that that's not like, I mean, iPhones these days cost like $2,000. Yeah. And so do like computers. And right. I don't know. To to put all that in danger. Yeah, it's not, math's not mathing to me on that one. Plus with three couples with a lot of kids, like one of them has five kids. Yeah. Like, I don't, I think that there would be some kind of like, not like a whistleblower but like someone some, would say something. someone will either say something slip up whatever yeah, or someone's gonna catch them doing something right and like, i didn't see any report of like oh yeah after this happened these you know these families suddenly came into a large sum of yeah. money like they didn't cash out anything or yeah, none of that so just, i don't i don't i don't, I don't like that, that one yeah no next what? <laughs> <laughs> moving on thank you next bacon eggs Whoa. <laughs> it sounded like a Harry Styles song right there. Oh my god. Thank you. <laughs> so what other people think happened, and what personally I think happened, is there was some kind of accident. A freak wave knocked all the men overboard. Queensland's Gold Coast, which is further south from where they were, is known for its waves and prime surfing conditions. I don't know how far north these conditions persist, but, you know, it's called a freak wave because it comes out of nowhere, so could happen. Bad weather may have knocked them off the boat. However, the tidy condition of the cabin refutes both of these theories because, you know, I, I would imagine if a boat was tossed around in bad weather, yeah. things would be all over the place. Queensland weather in April is usually known as the wet season. Um, there tends to be higher amounts of tropical rainfall during this season. And again, in the video, you see this squall in the distance and the water is choppy. Mm-hmm. Not super ideal sailing conditions. However, the fact that the men's fishing lines, their laundry, their life jackets were all found undisturbed, suggests that the weather could not have been that poor that Mm -hmm. any of those things would be affected somehow. Yeah. Could be that maybe the boat got lodged on a sandbar, and that's why I mentioned the uh, stern drive earlier. If they saw it coming up, they had, you know, that defect maybe did kick in, Mm -hmm. they had no way to slow down or reverse, they got caught on it. Yeah. All three of them jump out to push it, it gets free, and it catches the wind and sails off without them. Fuck they're left in the middle of the ocean yeah there's also what i'm calling the jibe theory this one i think is probably one of the more plausible out of all of these so given the evidence what we've seen from the video the state that the boat was found in it could be that the following is what happened one of the tunstead brothers probably peter because he's the one seen in the video fishing off the back of the boat uh, got his fishing lure entangled oh. in the portside rudder. He leans over the uh, leans over the back of the boat to try to free it, falls overboard. His other brother, likely James, since it was his shirt and glasses that were found on the back seat, so maybe you know he saw him go over, took those off to jump in after him, or you know just to get over there somehow mm-hmm. and get him. Tries to rescue the one who went over, but ended up also going over. So the two Tunsteads go over. Des, who's at the helm, sailing by the wind sees that they go over, he turns the engine on so that he can turn the boat and go back oh, for them. But he realizes he would have to drop sail first. I saw this and I was like, wait, what? Because 
I thought drop sail meant to like lower sail. And when I think lower sail, I think of old pirate terminology where the sails come down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, why would you lower them when you're trying to slow the boat down to turn? Mm. Turns out on catamarans, on these newer sailing boats, uh, dropping sail actually means like lowering the sails to the deck completely. So oh. just like sails, uh-huh. not here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sails gone. Um, so that he could have more control to maneuver to get the boat around. However, before he could get to the sails, he lets go of the helm, the wheel, if you will. Uh, and a change in either the boat's course or the direction of the wind causes a jibe. A jibe, from what I understand, I'm not a sailor, but it's basically <laughs> maneuvering the boat while its stern, the back, is facing uh-huh. the wind. This puts the sails, uh, the wind is going into the sails, so you get a lot of speed which is good when you're, you know, trying to go fast. Mm-hmm. The only issue is that jibing is dangerous because the force of the wind in the sails changing direction, this can cause the sail to fly from one side of the vessel to the other. When this happens, the bottom of the sail, there's this big pole called a boom. So when the sail moves, that big pole, the boom moves with it. So the sails can go flying from one side to the other, the boom goes flying with it. With the boom swinging across the deck, that's a huge hazard because that is a giant fuck you clothesline to yeah. anyone that is in range. Yeah. It could be that the boat jibed, the sails mm-hmm. moved, the boom went swinging, hit Des, and he was knocked into the water. Yeah. The boat still in the wind at this point continues to sail without them, and they're stranded. And if Des was hit by the boom, he could have been knocked unconscious, and he could have drowned right then and there. Mm-hmm. A lot of people wonder, or at least... I shouldn't say that. One source I saw <laughs> said that it would be expected that if these men, you know, did go into the water, if they did die there, their bodies would have floated. They would have found them. Here's the thing. Finding anything in the ocean is very hard. <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. If you've ever, you know, been on a plane and sailed over a big body of water and you know, you're sitting in the window seat, you're just looking out, pretending like you're in a music video, you look down in the ocean, it's really hard to spot anything. Mm-hmm. Um, from the air, it's hard. From the water, it's hard, because you have to cover a lot to, you know, really get a, a full a full sweep of an yeah. area. So finding, finding one person is very difficult. Finding three people, that can also be very difficult, even if they're all grouped together. I'm assuming that they're not wearing like bright orange safety colors or anything like that so it's extraordinarily difficult to find someone in the Mm -hmm. open ocean especially they don't have any flotation devices they don't Mm -hmm. have life vests yeah they don't have any anything Anything. they don't have flares no nothing at all it's just them that's some open water shit and i hate it so much god that movie scares the shit out of me i mean it takes it takes sometimes people get like rescued Mm -hmm. and they're in like little lifeboats or something right and they've been stranded for like a month yeah or something and they're barely alive yeah it's like you can't you have nothing if you if you're not wearing something bright you're gonna blend in Mm -hmm. like exactly 
we're very oh. yeah people are very hard to spot and we're small we're, we're very small, small. Yeah, like, exactly from the air looking down you can't yeah plus with these people's ages right like you get exhausted fat without uh, without a flotation device you're just treading water you're and, gonna get tired really yeah. fast and a lot of them or all three of them had some kind of like health, health issues issues right? so peter already said you know he can swim but he doesn't want to yeah. he's not a good swimmer he has a foot injury already mm-hmm. so that's yeah. going to contribute too. Apart from all that, you know, let's say that maybe they are able to stay afloat. Our bodies start to shut down after about three to five days without water. These men would have been exhausted from trying to stay afloat. Again, they're older. That contributes mm-hmm. to the rate uh, rate of dehydration. Yeah, that can happen. It's also, salt water. It's salt water, right? There's also the fact that the Great Barrier Reef is home to over fifty species of shark, yeah, that's including. What I was Tiger sharks, which are known to be aggressive towards humans and will attack unprovoked. I love them. I do too. They're actually called <laughs> trash cans of the sea because they I eat love everything. Them. <laughs> oh, they're like our trash pandas. <laughs> Tiger sharks are cool, but yeah, they are known to be aggressive. There are 15 species of sea snake, all of which are venomous, that live oh. here. Over 100 species of jellyfish, including the Australian box oh. jellyfish which is considered not only the most venomous sea animal in the world, but also the most venomous animal in the world, period. That'll fuck you up. It will. Their sting can induce paralysis and cardiac arrest within minutes. Mm -hmm. And of course, an Australian icon, the largest and most aggressive (sighs) reptile in the world, the saltwater crocodile, affectionately referred to as salties by Australians. I love that. I know. So, a lot. Wildlife biologically Mm -hmm. competing with a lot here so it's not you know sure yeah the bodies might float again it's hard to see these men could have died very quickly out there they could have floated very far very quickly you have a lot of animals out there that you know i hate to say it but could have come across them and Mm -hmm. you know done what animals do I mean, and, and it's not even it's not even them being like hunted down. No, it's also, not at all. They could have like just died, and you know the opportunity. It's survival of fittest. Exactly. You, you eat what you can find, and right. a lot a lot of animals are scavengers. Mm-hmm. You know, and sharks particularly are opportunistic. They're going to go after yeah. things that are tired or injured. Yeah. So. so it's like, and you said it was the wet season, so these guys are going to be exhaustive. It's raining where they're at, mm-hmm. and you know they're just being plummeted and the waves are probably a little stronger yeah. like i'm not saying that that is 100 percent for sure no, obviously exactly. but like all just a theory that's yeah exactly <laughs> a it's just a theory. theory i was gonna say that but then i was like i don't know if you can say <laughs> that <laughs> it's a geographic theory <laughs> thank you gotta get you so, your own <laughs> no i'll come up with the tagline i mean i already have nature as a real mother but i want something like oh that's something fine else. can't wait to put that <laughs> hoodie i'll buy it merch <laughs> merch merch one day i hope i really do hope set on to the patreon <laughs> <laughs> for the patreon that doesn't exist yet but one last theory people think as they always do with things like this maybe it was some kind of Alien. Yes. Fuck some, yeah. <laughs> some type of paranormal event befell these men and this vessel. Alien abduction is one of them. 
people think, you know, the torn sail, that's creepy, maybe something descended and got them. And just, there's pictures of the boat when it was found with that torn sail, and it's just really creepy looking. It's, it it's reminds like, me of the beginning of Jurassic Park 3, when, like, this boat goes through some fog, and it's fine, and it comes out on the other end, and it's just, like, shredded. Oh, I know, but, yeah. I thought of that. It's spooky. But... The evidence that, you know, points to this sudden and unexpected departure from the boat, along with the fact that the cabin was untouched. It, it literally, I think one of their um, family members says that it looks like they literally just got up and walked off the boat. That's terrifying. I got chills. I know. This like, has led many to speculate that the men were abducted by something not of this world. UFOs are not an uncommon occurrence in this area either. There were two instances of unidentified flying objects being reported in northern Queensland, one in 2018 and another in 2021, so recent. The former was spotted from Airlie Beach, where the men departed from. Oh, I got chills. I got chills. These objects, you know, some people have debunked them as meteors, satellites, some other kind of celestial object, but... I never know. Mm-mm. I'm a believer. I think aliens are out there. So. Do I think these men have were abducted? Seen, I don't know. Have but. you ever seen like the ancient alien like show? Yeah, and there's I like hate one that where show. it's like the UFOs come out of the water. What? You've never Ooh, seen that? No. I don't know if it's ancient aliens, but it's one of those <gasps> That's shows. Spooky. Yeah, I'm like. And it's in the Pacific. What else do we know happened in the Pacific that where nobody knows what happened? Atlantis. <laughs> no, the Malaysia flight. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Malaysia <laughs> Air Flight 370. They just released yeah. a series about that on Netflix. Yeah, I know. I want to watch it. We should watch it. Okay. Oh, my God. There's going to be an episode about Malaysian Airlines 370, by can the I way. Can I be on that one, too? Yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> Another paranormal thing people think might happen is a giant squid or a kraken. I only yeah, have one, I hate that one. I only have one bullet point under this, and it says this one is stupid. <laughs> I agree. That's not going to be held up in that's, this court. No, nope, get out. That's not what happened. I'm saying it right now. I'll put a. I'm putting my stamp on it. She's trying to be in every every fucking episode <laughs> here. <laughs> she is. Get out of here. You'll have your moment. Another, just one last like spooky supernatural thing that happened. Uh, Des Patton's niece, her name is Hope Hyming. She claimed that she had spiritual contact with her uncle the day after the search was called off. Oh my gosh. And she alleges that he was still alive, but struggling to survive. So that's something. Now, of course... This event has left an impact on, you know, Australian sailors, the sailing community at large, the paranormal community. It's really creepy. A lot of people have likened this to the Mary Celeste, which is another ghost ship that I'm also going to cover. Very similar circumstances where the boat was found derelict floating. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think it was a passenger ship and everybody on board was gone and there was no evidence. Uh, it, it, again, just like here, it looked like they just got up and left. So I think that one has been solved though, but oh. I'm going to do an episode on it. So I'll get Ooh. more into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I say that every episode. I'm like, that's going to be an episode. I promise it will. I, I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> you have a spreadsheet? No, it's just a Google doc, but oh. spreadsheet sounds funnier. Okay. <laughs> um, when it came to the actual search, the families, like I said, were not at all satisfied, and they 
pursue their own searches after the authorities terminated their efforts. Uh, Frances Tunstead, Peter's wife in particular, she was not happy with police efforts. I think it, uh, in one source she says that like all these police did was like go through their wallets, search through a few days, and say that they were gone. So mm-hmm. she was not happy. They felt the search ended too soon and that proper protocols were not followed. Again, I don't blame them at all. I would feel exactly the same mm-hmm. if it were me. Yeah. Uh, some family members disagree with the jibe theory, I said, or any kind of like accident or anything like that. They speculate that the men were taken against their will. This just has to do with um, they were very confident in their abilities as sailors. Shane Tunstead, one of James's sons, he claims that the men were not novice sailors. They knew what they were doing. So an accident he doesn't think could have occurred. It's more likely that they were kidnapped or taken or killed. Something something happened. Altogether, these men left behind three wives, 11 children, and 17 grandchildren. It's really sad. Um, one of James Tunstead's daughters, Karen, when discussing the idea of her father never being found, she said, in my head, I know that, but not in my heart. Oh. I know. And it's re- oh. it really breaks my heart because she didn't want him to go initially. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm a panicker. I didn't want him to go. So I really feel for Karen. It's really yeah, sad. Yeah, that's... Oof. Yeah. And I want to cap this off with a uh, a quote from one of the articles I read from the Brisbane Times. Uh, I fucking subscribed to the Brisbane Times to get this article. So it didn't <laughs> cost anything. It, was, it didn't cost anything. I just had to put it in my email. So now they oh, okay. email me all the time. I love like, that. Check, check out Brisbane News. And I'm like, I thank you. I don't live <laughs> I want to go someday. But in this article, it says, quote, tragedy cannot be measured. It is too intense, too private. Yet a sense of unreality endures about the events of Sunday, April 15th, when Des, Peter, and James set sail in the Whitsunday Passage, one of those fortunate locations thought of as a worldly paradise, end quote. So, again, to this day, no one knows what happened to Des Batten, Peter, or James Tunstead. The coroner thinks that they have died. A lot of people think that they're missing. Maybe still out there. Maybe something else happened to them. But common thing here is none of us know mm-hmm. as far as we know they're lost at sea yeah so i really hope that these families have been able to find some peace after all these years and i hope that one day for their sake we do actually find out what happened to those men but that was the nautical mystery of the kaz 2 and her missing crew and also surprise the first episode of our ghost ship series because i'm gonna have many of these Whoa. i've got a bunch of uh ghost ships that i'm gonna cover in the upcoming episodes so look forward to those i said the mary celeste like i said she's getting an episode <laughs> so Ooh. that was the cast too oh my god what did you think was that scary it was very creepy my mind was literally going like every direction possible <laughs> i was like thinking of like maybe this maybe that like mm-hmm it's just the unknown. It I mean, is, like, it's cre- yeah. We're- I feel like the ocean is like super scary. Like we hear of like other like lost people, mm-hmm. but like the ocean is just so like we 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 don't know shit about no, it. It's, it's terrifying. Like, I respect her. I love her, but she scares the shit yeah. out of me. Like even in the middle of the night. Like I've I've gone to the beach. Mm-hmm. And we live here in San Diego, so like we got the we got we, a we have a ton of light. Baby. 
you know yeah yeah we have like a ton of light pollution like yeah but once you like look into like the ocean if you're on the beach and you look into the ocean it's just like pitch black yeah like you see like like dots of like the ships and everything Mm -hmm. but like it's pitch black like it's terrifying if you if you drive like up up to like la area and you're on the five and you're going to like you're in like the camp Hilton area mm-hmm. where there's like no lights nothing anywhere it's terrifying yeah. like there is nothing for anyone who doesn't live by the ocean or has never seen the ocean at night uh that shit is pure black at night the water is black when you it's, look out yeah it is and just like oh my god and just because she doesn't care about you the ocean doesn't care about <laughs> you and it's so it's humbling and it's terrifying yeah. and it's ooh. she's a beauty but she's also a danger she is that that was so beautiful oh, thank oh you God. try to be more poetic it's my 2023 <laughs> you succeeded <laughs> that was incredible <laughs> Oh my god. Thank you for joining me, Zara. I'm glad that I finally got to record with you. I'm glad. You're, really good, you're a really good guest to have. Oh, I hope so. I feel like I wasn't talking enough. No, you were perfect. <laughs> I was just like, I can't interrupt her if she's no. like in mid-story. You That's kind of fun. I should have said that actually at first. Be like, yeah, interrupt me. Go ahead. Do it. <laughs> That's what I normally tell guests when they come on. And by guests, I mean just Anthony and Arya because the only two have been so far. But I'm like, just interrupt me. Say it. Whatever, you, whatever comes off the dome, just say it. But yeah. Wear your life. Wear your life jacket, please, for God's sake. Please do. That has been the cast too. I'm Alexis. This is Zara. Careful out there. Sail safely. And in Gaia, we trust. Wow. Signing out. Farewell. <laughs> she just did a salute. I did. <laughs> Goodbye, soldiers. We love that. See you guys not next week, but the week after. I promise. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.